The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. How about them New York Jets? <laughs> yeah. Might as well start off on the right foot, Brian, right? Jets win today. Nice game. Beat the undefeated, previously undefeated Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, we'll get to that uh, further later on. But good evening. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to hour number one of Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here, taking you through the first hour. This is Sunday night, the 15th day of October 2023, in case you're just waking up. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us, as always, across the glass here. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight. Leading off, we'll welcome in the grandson of a great Hall of Famer, Branch Ricky III, will be with us. In the second half, we'll speak to author Michael McCambridge about his new book, The Big Time. That's about... The Rise of Sports in America During the 70s should be an interesting segment. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show. Great people, great stories up ahead. As always, social media, I'd like to remind you about that before we start. We're on Facebook at the Talk of New York Sports. I'm on Facebook at uh, the Talk of New York Sports uh, with Bill Donahue. You'll find that out there. You'll find sports information, show information, so much more stuff. So stop by, give us a look. You can give us a like. Uh, you can follow us on X at Sports Talk New York. You can follow me on X at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't you worry none because they're all out on the website the following day. And you can listen to them whenever you want. Well, our first guest is the grandson, as I said, of a great Hall of Famer. He served as the 17th and final president of the Pacific Coast League. Previously to that, he served as the president of the American Association. All told, this gentleman compiled a 57-year baseball career. We're fortunate to be able to welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight, Branch Rickey III. Branch, good evening. Branch, you with us? Excuse me. Hi, Bill. Oh, Glad there you to be are. Joining you. <laughs> All right. I, I had some I had some uh, noise in the background and put on my mute button and forgot to take it off. Ah, that's okay. Glad, glad you uh, recovered in time, Branch. No worries. <laughs> now I, I want I have to ask, what is it like being the descendant the descendant of a baseball immortal? Uh, I can only imagine what it's like. Uh, I, in, in my young years, I lived across the pasture from my grandfather and in Pittsburgh, um, we, he was with the pirates, uh, as they were recovering from, uh, many years of being in the doldrums, being in eighth place in an eight team league. And as I was in grade school and, and, uh, very much identified with the struggling pirates uh, it was it was kind of a source of ridicule and uh, i i i thought it was somewhat of a handicap ah okay <laughs> I- interesting yeah 
And uh, so uh, being part of the Ricky family didn't seem like any sort of privilege at the time. Uh, and, and I look back on that with such a loving uh, memory. And, Understood. Uh, yeah, laugh, I... laughing, laughingly. Yeah, of course, uh, my grandfather had the privilege of seeing uh, his some of his sightings, such as Clemente and Mazeroski, who themselves became Hall of Famers, uh, helped the Pirates to World Championship in 1960 against the Yankees, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 I think that kind of crowned a, a career for him. But um, your question is is a, is a deep question because uh as as you grow through your young years and it's all about uh the attachment of uh, a family member being in prominence with a major league club mm-hmm. but but my deep privilege is the legacy that he left and of, and of course my grandfather will probably be best remembered for his his uh, involvement with Jackie Robinson, and uh, for uh, that uh, impact on professional baseball and uh, and whatever other ripple effects it had on our country and our culture, mm-hmm. but it was the legacy of how he carried himself throughout life. And his ethics, his principles, his commitments to uh, excellence, and uh, his love of his family. It was his uh, persona that was so profound. And uh, the fact that he had such an impeccable career uh, in, in, in terms of not being in any way blemished, by any scandals or any negative uh, impact of, mm-hmm. of uh, any kind of profound effect other than uh, having teams that struggled from time to time. But uh, having that kind of legacy is nothing but a privilege, and I'm so honored to uh, have been born into, in, into a relationship with him. Rightfully so, Branch. Yeah, that is that is definitely true, and and the stories you took us through, uh, rightfully so, as I say. Now you were uh, head of the Pacific Coast League, the American Association. You also won uh, minor league baseball's Warren Giles Award uh, for outstanding service as a league president, and uh, you, you won that twice, didn't you? Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a nice honor to have. I I spent uh, some years in player development on the major league side. Uh, scouting was uh, really a commitment and, and a spillover for my grandfather's influence on me. And I and I loved scouting. I loved player development. Spent some years as a farm director with Pittsburgh, and then went over to Cincinnati. But I have to say that the uh twist that took me to minor league baseball and involvement as a minor league league president were really really uh a surprise and what a wonderful wonderful uh 
way to to be deeply involved in baseball for so many years. Uh, I really, I really found my love for the game magnified many times over uh, on the minor league side. There, there are so many things about the professional game that go so well, uh, and I was fortunate to be at the AAA level and, and with so many very, very talented owners and operators and. Uh, Field personnel. It, it it was it was quite a remarkable experience for me, and a, a big surprise because I did not anticipate ever spending years in in that kind of involvement. We are speaking tonight with Branch Riggy the uh, third. You did mention Branch, you're in player development and also scouting. Do you feel that scouts should get more recognition than they do? Do you think may perhaps a scout's a scout's wing in the baseball hall of fame, perhaps, Branch? How do you what do you think about that? Well, uh, scouts uh, are really at the core of the give of baseball, and they are uh, so deeply imbued with. The, the character of the game, and if you if you get the good fortune to spend time around longtime scouts, you really uh, learn so much more about the complexion of the game. Um, I I I was just very fortunate the years that I was scouting to run into many, many of the senior personnel that had come out of the 1940s, the 1950s, 1960s, and uh, had been former players, most all of them. And uh, the stories and the, uh, the ability to spend time with them was really a privilege. They They didn't do scouting for the money. They didn't do their work for the recognition. They did it because they loved the game and because it allowed them to be really at the critical juncture of that uh, point in a, in a boy's career where he had the chance to make the step from amateur player to professional, and in some cases they were able to find that budding superstar. And it, it, it's it's a magic. There's a there's a special magic in scouting that uh, seems uh, almost unique to to that role in the game that doesn't exist quite anywhere else. And the the scouts are oh selfless uh, because. So often they're in places that uh, nobody else knows what they're doing or how they're doing it. Or they're they they're, they're just out in the bushes and uh, yeah. digging and scratching and and cultivating and doing all the dirty work of the game with without anybody really applauding them or getting to uh, see what they're doing. And uh, I'm I'm a big admirer. of Scouts and scouting, uh, it's a wonderful profession. Uh, uh, of course, in the modern era, it has changed dramatically with all of the analytics. Right. That is true, Branch. 
Branch Ricky the third with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you mentioned earlier, Branch, that uh, your grandfather's legacy, of course, he's remembered for being instrumental in breaking baseball's color barrier by bringing Jackie Robinson to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, I, I had read a story about your grandfather and a gentleman by the name of Charles Folis, who was the first black professional football player, and Branch Rickey and Charles Folis had a relationship back in the early 1900s, I believe when Branch was uh, with Ohio Wesleyan's football team. Uh, I didn't come to know that until many, many years after my grandfather had passed away. I had the disadvantage Uh of not ever being able to uh, ask him about it and probe into, uh, you know, what what exactly, how that uh, evolved and uh, what it consisted of. Uh, So I'm uh, not well informed on that but uh, have read uh, about it and uh, uh, amazing uh, uh, kind of coincidence on the football side parallel to his involvement on the baseball side. Right. Yeah, that is true. Now, uh, Branch was with the St. Louis Browns, uh, where, where he had a relationship with the great George Sisler. He moved on to the St. Louis Cardinals, more immortal names brought up that, that he interacts with Roger Hornsby and Miller Huggins. And what I did not know, Branch, is that your grandfather uh, also contributed to the appearance of the two cardinals on the bat, perched on the bat in the on the uniform of the St. Louis Cardinals, which is there to this day. Well... Uh, there were there there was a, uh, a there's a folklore in our family uh-huh. that I had two I uh, uh, my, uh, my father was one of six children he had five sisters and all of my five aunts were artistic uh, but it, uh, it, it the story goes that there were two of them that uh, were sitting at the dining room table uh, one summer, and they were uh, fiddling around, and uh, that they were actually involved in redesigning the Cardinal logo. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Such that they they came up with uh, a a uh, repositioning of... of, uh, that that long time now what is a long time logo for the cardinals mm-hmm. and uh, if what is so humorous when you think about that that nowadays if a big business oh, goes yeah. up designing a logo they right. might spend millions and millions and millions of dollars right in yeah. in coming up with it and test marketing it and trying to do just this and that to make sure that it uh, is just exactly what the market needs and demands and uh, back in the back in the twenties this was done by a couple of teenagers pre teenagers who were fiddling around with the uh, arts and crafts and came up with yeah. it in their dining room. Oh, and it so stood the it test of time, Branch. That's for sure. Yeah, it stood the test of time. Now, uh, Branch Rickey 
also pursued the the concept of a farm system with the St. Louis Cardinals. And that, that, that's another part of his legacy that people may not be familiar with. Well, when he came to the Cardinals, they were uh, – a lot of people don't realize that in the old National and American League, uh, there were eight teams in the American League and eight teams in the National League. And our national pastime for over 50 years, I, I have, I'd have to stop and, and count, but our national pastime was played in, in one quadrant of the United States. Mm-hmm. The, the team furthest west in all of Major League Baseball was St. Louis. Right. The team furthest south in all of Major League Baseball was St. Louis. It, and it was in uh, the poorest market, or the, the, the team was uh, definitely not prosperous. And it couldn't compete financially with the wealthier market teams, such as New York and Boston and Philadelphia and so forth, all the, all the stronger metropolitan areas. There had to be some way for the Cardinals to dig themselves out and come up with talent. And so it was, I don't know that it was out of genius as much as it was out of desperation. <laughs> that was something True. that my grandfather was good at dealing with. He, 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 he had a background in the, in the hills, the hill, hillside farming of Southern Ohio, and and he understood desperation, and he, and he could and he, and he uh, really was creative and adept at uh, problem solving, and uh, began little by little cultivating a system where he could uh, gather players and uh, develop them and bring them to St. Louis, and no one else was doing it at the time, and. Uh, in fact, the commissioner of baseball tried to stop him at one point, feeling it was uh, an unfair system and should should be prevented. Yeah, good old Judge but, Landis, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Kennesaw Mountain Landis who saw a problem with Branch Rickey's farm system uh, that he instituted, folks. And uh, the the rest, they say, is history. But uh, obviously it worked, Branch. Because by 1931, the Cards were were the class of the National League. They they won 100 games in 1931, won the World Series uh, over the Philadelphia A's, and uh, they started cultivating, as we said, as we use the words, uh, players like Dizzy Dean, Ducky Medwick, Paul Dean. Uh, the gas house gang ball players started bringing these guys in, oh. right? In a slaughter uh, from the from the minor leagues, and they began uh, imitation. Uh, <clears throat> they say uh, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. The, 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 the other clubs started finding that uh, this was something that they needed to get about doing themselves. I, I think uh, the Cardinals won six pennants uh, over a 20-year period, and uh, accomplishing that uh, from, the, from the marketplace that they were in was quite an achievement. 
Definitely. That is true. Well, soon Branch moves on to the Dodgers. Branch Rickey III with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Continued innovation from the man. Uh, Responsible for the first full-time spring training facility. That, of course, folks may remember Dodger Town down in Vero Beach, the longtime home, spring home of the uh, Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers. And... uh, he promoted uh, more th- more new ideals with the the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, he was by uh, by basic instinct. My grandfather was an instructor. He really um, had uh, a tendency under all circumstances. Uh, no matter who he was around, whether he was around uh, veteran players or whether he was around uh, young players or whether he was around children or whether he was around his family, he was always finding himself uh, mentoring and teaching and 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 finding ways uh, to r- repeat instructive manners of going about the learning process. And so uh, for him, a permanent spring training camp was a logical solution to uh, setting up batting cages and having pitching machines and having uh, multiple fields where you could train uh, quite a number of players and have uh, housing facilities so that you're uh, not battling the, the housing situation during spring training and uh, other other training techniques that uh, became uh, known as the Dodger way of going about things. Uh, but uh, it, it became uh, it became again a thing that uh, got copied by all the other major league clubs. Speaking of copied by everyone, Branch. Uh, Branch Rickey also pioneered the use of statistical analysis, folks, in baseball, the forefront of what is now known as sabermetrics. He hires a statistician by the name of Alan Roth as a full-time analyst for the Dodgers. That was back in 1947. So you can see where he's breaking ground there as well. He, he didn't like... Um false statistics he found out he found that there were uh, things that uh, were often uh, relied upon superficial uh, falsely uh, superficial statistics and that he thought did not measure what uh, needed to be measured and uh, that's where Alan Roth came into play and they started devising ways of putting together compound formulas and uh, uh, measuring both on the offensive side and on the defensive side, mm-hmm. ways of trying to get a more accurate measure of performance. And so, um, again, he was into that uh instructive side of uh, trying to uh, get his uh, scouts and his player development personnel 
into being able to analyze and and trying to teach them how to go about measuring uh, the players that they were they were trying to bring along. So uh, statistics uh, became increasingly important to him as his career evolved. Definitely, he he actually promoted the idea that on base percentage. Um, was more important hitting statistic than batting average. And also, uh, under Branch Rickey, Alan Roth was also the first person to provide uh, actual statistical evidence that platooning, uh, the effects of platooning, uh, were real, and not only real, but quantifiable. Very interesting. It it was, and uh, of course, uh, sabermetrics and uh, the the analytics that have evolved today have gotten very very much more sophisticated as as uh, time has gone by. It's it's a thing that is ever evolving. Very true, Branch. Branch, Ricky the Third, with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, Red Barber, the longtime uh, Dodger announcer, he he mentions in Ken Burns' uh, baseball documentary that uh, Branch Ricky's determination to desegregate Major League Baseball was born uh, out of a combination, really, of idealism, which we can see, and uh, really astute business sense and. Uh, by that, I mean uh, the uh, team that recruited and signed the most black ball players, and logically the first team to hire them would get the first pick of the players at a good price. And uh, he, he attempted to sign other guy. Well, of course, he signed Don Newcomb. We know Jackie Robinson's story. And uh, Branch Rickey also attempted to sign Monty Irvin, but uh, Hall of Famer Effa Manley over in Newark with the Newark Eagles got a hold of Monty Irvin first. So Branch w- w- was really on top of uh, rating America for black talent. Well, as I referred to a little bit ago, Growing up in the in the in southern Ohio in the uh, hill farming area outside of Portsmouth, he talked about uh, playing ball uh, there and not being able to come up with enough players. And they they in, in order to get a team together, they had to reach into the black community. And so my grandfather was no stranger to having a mixed team. Uh, in, in order to, uh, get, get games played. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think, uh, I don't think that, um, this, uh, was anything but a constant evolution for him. And then of course he had in college at Ohio Wesleyan University, he had a talented black player on his Team there as he was coaching the team, um, who uh, again was just another example to him of the of the talent that uh, was potentially being blocked from the game. 
That, that was a gentleman by the name of Charles Thomas Branch. Charles Thomas, back yeah. at, Back at Ohio Wesleyan that, that Branch yeah. Ricky uh, had on, on the ball team. That, that's correct. Who, who, who he maintained a friendship with over the years. Charles uh-huh. Thomas went on to become a dentist in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he would he would pass through uh, St. Louis from time to time when my grandfather was there, and they they would get to visit during baseball games. But um, so my grandfather was not naive to the talent that was being blocked, and he was not naive to uh, the, the 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 character of of the blacks that he had played with, and he had coached. Um, so there, there, there were some things that happened in his background that caused him to want to make an impact on that front to see things change, and uh, he set about to do it. He certainly did. The, I, I, I think the miracle, and and I'm sorry to kind of force this word into the equation, but. I can't. I can't pick a better word. The miracle that happened mm-hmm. was that he was able to find Jackie Robinson, because uh, it's just unimaginable that uh, these two men came across each other at the point they did. Now, of course, it was a it was a concerted multi-year effort on my grandfather's part to try to find that talented individual and understandably uh, he came up with somebody very talented that notwithstanding to find Jackie Robinson is uh, just another step altogether because Jackie was what Jackie was he was a step beyond and these two coming together I, I just I, I think you can understand why here we are over 70 years later and Jackie Starr, you know, there's so many athletes who in the 19th century set all sorts, in the 20th century, I'm sorry, set all sorts of records in boxing and track and whatever sport you want to name. Jackie played so few years because he got a late start and was mm-hmm. not fortunate to set many records and 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 he really was not uh, on a plateau of, of so many of those incredible athletes of, of so many other sports yet today his star is still rising it is unblemished perfect he is a national hero and with due cause with great justification with, with, but I don't I don't think he would have been as great had he not come across my grandfather who helped mentor that start and I don't think my grandfather could have accomplished what he wanted to accomplish as successfully as he did had he not found Jackie 
Wonderfully put, Branch. Wonderfully put. And uh, we'd like to have you back again. We, we got a load of questions well, to I, further I, ask. I've taken part too long, but I, that's, I, I really that's quite really all right. appreciate you it, inviting me on. It's you. been a real pleasure, Branch. We thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some of us here up in New York. And we will be in touch with you. Thanks for having me on very much, Bill. That's, I've enjoyed it. That's Branch Ricky, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll welcome in author Michael McCambridge, and we'll delve into his new book about sports in the 1970s titled The Big Time. Stay with us, folks. to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB. I want to thank you for stopping by and hanging with us for a while tonight. Uh, great conversation with Branch Rickey. Uh, we want to have him back. So much more to talk about uh, to that gentleman about his grandfather and, and uh, his life in baseball. And I just want to mention again the New York Jets beating the Philadelphia Eagles tonight, uh, handing them their first loss. Yes, <laughs> handing them their first loss of the season. And the mighty New York Jets, uh, very proud of them tonight. Very, very good game. Well, we're also, we're in the thick of the Major League Baseball postseason, which, uh, I, as you know, I look forward to every year. The series between the Braves and the Phillies. I just have to say that um, my disdain for the Braves is stronger than my despising of the Phillies. How does that sound? I'm glad to have the Braves and, and the fans with the tomahawk chop uh, embarrassed and gone from the scene. So now... I can root for the Diamondbacks to take Philadelphia then, and only then will life be good. We got hockey now. The Islanders are back, uh, which is a a good thing. Uh, They won their first game at at the UBS Arena. And, of course, the Jets still around for several more more weeks to torture us, their fan base. So we look forward to that, folks. Well, let's move on. Our next guest He's an author, journalist, TV commentator whose books have included the acclaimed America's Game, the epic story of how pro football captured a nation, and another book about a great topic, Chuck Knoll, his life's work. Uh, And for eight years, this gentleman was a columnist and critic at the Austin American Statesman. He was later a contributor to the New Literary History of America, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Sports Illustrated, and GQ. 
His latest work is titled The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. We're anxious to delve into that. Welcome to the show tonight, Michael McCambridge. Michael, good evening. Good evening, and thanks for having me. Wonderful to be with you tonight, Michael. I, I just want to ask you right off the bat, as we, we use a euphemism there, what, what made you decide to chronicle uh, the events of the 70s uh, to, to really depict their dominance in history of, of sports? You know, it was, a, it was a chain of events. I think that one of the things that's true of sports fans is most sports fans remember the era that they fell in love with sports as the ideal era for sports. True. And I grew up in I grew up in the seventies and, and fell in love with it and, and certainly had that fondness and that obsession from that era. But as I got older, I saw the seventies portrayed and largely accurately as, as you know, as this time of long hair and low inhibitions and, and uh, all of the crazy things that went on and that much was true. But the more I learned about sports, the more I realized that in addition to, you know, Yankees pitchers swapping spouses and things like that, <laughs> it was also an extraordinarily influential and impactful decade for the infrastructure of American sports. Uh, sports moving to prime time, starting with Monday Night Football in 1970, um, athletes, getting a sense of their own autonomy from the dawn of free agency in baseball, integration becoming more the rule than the exception, at least within sports, and then, of course, women getting involved in unprecedented numbers, not just as athletes, but coaches, administrators, fans, writers. And, and so I, I felt like there was a broad social history to be written about what an important decade it was and how the 70s shaped the landscape of American sports even today. Good points all. Good points all, Michael. That's for sure. And uh, as I was uh, going through the book, I, I thought to myself, I, I took a sociology of sports course in college, and it, this could certainly serve as a textbook for a course like that. Uh, uh, I was wondering if, if uh, you've gotten any, any uh, offers, or how would you get your book into schools as a textbook? <laughs> Well, the first thing is trying to get the book into bookstores. Yeah, um, right. the textbooks would be great. Um, it, the book was just published on Tuesday, so it's a little early in the game for, yeah. for hearing ancillary interest. But certainly the idea is that this would be something that would be of interest, one hopes, to people who lived through the 70s in sports and remember the details of just, you know, from the beginning of the decade, how damn hard it was just to get even a final score sometimes um, because you had to wait for the next morning's paper. And if you were in the East Coast or in the Midwest, as I was, you sometimes had to wait for the next afternoon's paper. So you would hope it would be of interest to people through the 70s, but also sports fans today who want to understand better um, how sports has developed the way they've developed and, and why it's like this today. We had something in New York a while back, uh, Michael, called Sports Phone. And that, that I took you off. The book. Yeah. yeah. Sports Phone took off because it gave you, uh, at, at, uh, your arm's length to the phone, uh, access hey. to all the scores. And, and that kind of was the, uh, forerunner of the sports radio station. And, For sure. uh, 
and uh, something like that really was revolutionary. But getting back to the book, let's talk about some uh, exemplary athletes during the decade of the 70s. I mean, we could go through the cover of the book and, and, uh, and talk about Billie Jean King right off the bat. Yes, uh, and I, I opened the book with the battle of the sexes between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs because I think it was one of those sports events that um, not only captured the nation's imagination, but it, it resonated because who you were rooting for said something about what sort of person you were. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, there was there had been um, a rise of what we know today as second-wave feminism and women advocating for their rights to equal pay and equal opportunity. And as you may remember, there was quite a pushback to that. And uh, Bobby Riggs stood out as sort of the, the reigning, self-described male chauvinist pig of the era. And I can remember talking to Billie Jean King, who said that when Riggs beat Margaret Court on Mother's Day that year, 73, she was just coming back from a tournament in Japan, and she got the news of the final score and said, "Damn it, I'm, you know, I'm going to have to play him now." Yeah. And I think that I think that you would be hard pressed to find an athlete who went into a contest under greater pressure than Billie Jean King did for that match, because she knew that not only was was her legacy going to be defined by the result, but the entire women's athletic movement was going to be judged for better or worse, fairly or unfairly by the result of that match, and that's what I wanted to bring out in, in that prologue. That is certainly true, and, and uh, all points viable there as well, Michael, about Billie Jean King, with the pressure on her uh, going up against Bobby Riggs, and the, the, the words male chauvinist pig, I haven't heard that in, in so long. That, uh, and, and it really was used quite often back then, as I recall. But that, that is and so Bobby true. Bobby it himself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, the, he played it up to the hilt, too, Bobby Riggs. But uh, that, that was a tremendous event down in the Houston Astrodome. Where, where else could it be but in, in the, uh, the eighth wonder of eighth the world? Wonder. Yeah. Yes. And also on the cover of the big time, Michael McCambridge with us tonight on uh, Sports Talk New York, talking about how the 70s transformed sports in America. Of course, the great Hall of Famer, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Henry Aaron, who, who uh, beat Babe Ruth's record during the 70s. And I'll always remember the description, uh, Michael, from Vin Scully when uh, broadcasting yes. that event, saying that uh, here we are in the Deep South, in, yes. a, in America, and a black man is getting a standing ovation. Right. Yeah. For breaking, for breaking the most hallowed record in American sports at that time. Right. I mean, I, I don't think there's any analog today for the, for the sort of power that that number had. And as I try to point out in my book, even though Henry Aaron certainly had the, the support of a vast majority of the nation's sports fans, the letters he received and the death threats he received during the end of that home run chase, I think uh, it, it put up a mirror that was um, to American sports fans that was that was quite disquieting and disconcerting. And um, Aaron's stoic ability 
and his resolve to continue in the face of all that um, was one of the defining accomplishments of the decade and in, in American sports as well, for sure. So true. And also on the cover, somebody I'd like to mention is somebody who grew up uh, just a few miles up the road from here, up in Roosevelt, uh, the great Dr. J, Julius Irving, with the ABA. The ABA was so far ahead of its time and so groundbreaking uh, to really shake the NBA at its roots, to, to uh, force these teams to come into the league. And the, the style of play, the run and gun, the red, white, and blue ball, the three-point shot, oh, yeah. it, it, was, it was just... Uh, amazing, and the doctor was at the forefront of that. Yeah, I think you could make a case that Julius Irving uh, was the last truly mythic figure in American sports because he was the last athlete to become a superstar without most of the country ever seeing him. You know, I, I grew up in Kansas City, and in the middle of the 70s, you have most of the kids on the playground, white, black, young, old, who their favorite basketball player was, the most popular answer would have been Julius Irving, and we'd never seen him play. Right. All we saw were the pictures, you know, the, the, the stars and stripes uniform and the, the mushroom afro and, and all the stories of what he could do. And it was, it was so evocative and so powerful. I remember at the time, I thought just the name, Nassau Coliseum, in Uniondale, New York. It right. sounded like the most exotic place in the world. Oh, boy. <laughs> and and like, like 30 years later, when I was working on my book, America's Game, I drove by it, and I remember thinking, okay, so so that's what Nassau Coliseum looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. And another off the cover, another picture off the cover was, was probably one of the biggest events in sports in the 1970s, I, I was in grade school, fifth or sixth grade, uh, when Ali Frazier one uh, took off uh, from Madison Square Garden. Everybody from Frank Sinatra uh, was in the crowd that night at Madison Square Garden uh, to see Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier square off. And th that was a truly a momentous event. I, I think you'd be you would really struggle to think of an event that got bigger play beforehand. And it was, you know, Ali Frazier 1 was a little bit like the Battle of the Sexes in that who you were rooting for revealed something about about your worldview. And I think even more, you know, the, the, the enduring thing about that was that was the first sports event that really underscored what a big business it had become. Think about 1971, both fighters were guaranteed $2.5 million. And that was, you know, as they say, back when $2.5 million was a considerable amount of money for a night's work. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that fight lived up to the billing. And I can remember talking uh, it was not that many years ago to Bob Costas, and I asked him, you know, of all the things you've covered, of all the things you've seen as a fan and called as an announcer, what felt like the biggest event ever? And he said when he was in college at Syracuse, going to a closed-circuit telecast of the Ali Frazier fight felt like mm -hmm. the entire world depended on it. And so many people from that time um, said the same thing. Yeah, 
Closed circuit TV. There's there's another term from from the era, Michael, that uh, you don't hear much of today. But uh, also, what your book brings out, and we're talking to Michael McCambridge tonight about his book, The Big Time: How the Seventies Transformed Sports in America. The era really redefined the role of athletes in American culture. For sure, and I think you know we see that with with someone like Mean Joe Green of the Steelers, mm-hmm. who very little was known about when his career began with the Steelers. He was never on national TV in college, playing at what then was known as North Texas State University. And, you know, the first part of the decade, to the extent that anybody knew anything about Joe Green other than he was an excellent football player, it was that he was mean, just as his nickname said. <laughs> and but the striking thing was... That Coca-Cola ad he did, that commercial spot, which was shot in Pelham, New York, by the way, um, not only humanized Joe Green for the nation's sports fans, but talking to Joe Green, he said, you know, suddenly I had not just, you know, these pushy middle-aged men coming up wanting my autograph, but I had grandmothers and kids coming up wanting to meet me. And he said that... The thing that struck him was after the commercial, he became, in his own words, a nicer person because of, you know, just because of the effect of people seeing this side of his personality. And and so I think that was the, the dawn of the image manufacturing industry that, that went on in, in the confluence of sports and advertising. So true. And I bet you that's on YouTube, folks. Google that commercial, Coca-Cola, Mean Joe Green. Uh, it, it is a classic that, that uh, will go down and has gone down in history. Now, also, Michael, spectator sports, all the all sports, uh, became really a main, mainstream phenom- phenomena. It, it wasn't just in the niche of sports. It really became mainstream. Exactly, and I think we have to go back to the impact of Monday Night Football. You know, when when Pete Rozelle was going around with that package in 1969, the commissioner of the NFL, trying to sell it to the networks, CBS turned it down. Um, They weren't going to preempt their their ace lineup, and NBC didn't want to alienate Johnny Carson uh, because he was doing The Tonight Show live then at 11.30 Eastern time, and and they had done, I think, one or two games that had caused The Tonight Show to start late, and Mr. Carson was not pleased. But I think the the larger conventional wisdom in broadcasting was that even though the, the NFL had been very successful and pro football was successful, um, that it was still too male, too marginal, too parochial to really succeed in front of this mass audience of network primetime TV, which was a majority female at the time. And, but Roselle was convinced that, that the package could make it. And they signed the deal with ABC, which as you know, had Rune Arledge, um, as the producer, um, revolutionizing the way sports were televised. And from that first Monday night football game, the Browns against the Jets, Arledge made sure that ABC had personalities in the booth with Cosell and Meredith, and a year later Frank Gifford, and he made sure they emphasized 
the human drama, the narrative arc of the game and the conflict, and they did that marvelously. And that made Monday Night Football a sensation. And if you look at the history, a year later, the first World Series game was in prime time. Um, in 1972, the Olympics goes to prime time every night. 73, we started with the NCAA men's national championship game and basketball in prime time. I think a case can be made that Monday night's foot football success moved all of American sports into a more central role in the popular culture. Definitely agree with you there, Michael. I mean, it, it not only brought you sports, but in the case of the assassination of John Lennon, there was a, there was an instance when Monday Night Football football turned into a, a news broadcast and and really brought exactly. home to America a horrible story. And and that, that's how people learned about the death of John Lennon was from Howard Cosell. All the more poignant because a few years earlier. Lennon had visited the broadcast booth right. and was interviewed. Um, so, yes. And uh, also, you bring out in the book the way athletes were paid definitely changed during the 70s, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you had guys making a, a million dollars, dare I say, uh, in the 70s, and, and that, that was tough to swallow for people. The thing that struck me, and I, you know, I, I did like 300 hours of interviews for this book, but also combed through a lot of the uh, the journalism that was written in the 70s, and I, I stumbled onto a quote by Gordy Howe, who, as you know, came out of retirement after his Red Wings career in the NHL and played for the Houston Arrows in the Upstart World Hockey Association. Mm -hmm. And Howe talked about in the 60s when he was the biggest star in hockey and winning Stanley Cups and MVP awards, he still had to work in the off-season to make ends meet. And his next-door neighbor, who was a businessman, had a boat that he would take out to the lake on weekends, and Gordy couldn't do any of that. And it was clear that the time had come to understand that these athletes were also performing artists, mm -hmm. also entertainers, and deserved to be paid commensurate with the growing amount of revenue that they were generating. And that change started to happen in the 70s as well. Right. That is definitely true. And also the way these guys and ladies were packaged. I mean, when I was a kid, you had baseball cards and you had the game of the week on Saturday afternoon that brought you these guys, brought these guys into your home. And, and that right. was the extent of it. It's when I talk to younger people about the landscape of sports in the 70s, one of the hardest things to get across is explaining to people who now can watch any football game played on a Saturday that in the 70s there was one college football game on TV the entire day on one network. If you were lucky and it was a holiday or Thanksgiving weekend, you might get two games, a doubleheader, uh -huh. but, but that was it. And from there, you had to rely on the Prudential College scoreboard and the Sunday newspaper. And and it was so marginal in terms of how much time there was and also in terms of when it intersected with the culture as a whole. But by the end of the decade, when you have the Super Bowl going to prime time, when you have the miracle at Lake Placid sort of reverberating with Cold War tension, 
when you have ESPN going on the air, presuming to spend around the clock 24 hours covering sports, you begin to see for the first time the broad contours of what sports would become, what it has become today, which is in this increasingly balkanized, narrow-cast country we live in, the last really big tent in American culture. Definitely. Well, Michael, I want to thank you for being with us tonight. The book, folks, once again is titled The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. And I appreciate you taking the time out of your Sunday night to talk to us here in New York. And uh, all the best with the book, Michael. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Take care. That is Michael McCambridge, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Branch Ricky Third, and Michael McCambridge, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. See you on next on Sunday evening, October 29th. I'll be out here with you. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.